Hello and welcome to the London School of Theology podcast. You are listening to our weekly chapel service. In this episode, you'll be hearing from Dr. Chloe Lynch. London School of Theology. Forming disciples. Resourcing churches. Impacting society. The compassion of the Lord. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. And it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Here ends the reading of God's word. 
Eve, thank you for reading that so powerfully. Also, Ethan and team for leading us so powerfully. There are times, aren't there, when you get up as a preacher and you feel the sermon's already been preached. In all honesty, I feel like that today. Um, I don't know about you, but I've been following what's been happening at Asbury College for the last two weeks. They had a chapel service a couple of weeks ago on a Wednesday. Not unlike this, bigger place, more people, but, you know, normal college chapel sermon service. And they began worshipping, and they haven't stopped. And people call it revival. Other people call it an awakening. Other people like me are like, I don't even know what to call it, and I don't really care. But I want it. I want it for the UK. I've wanted it for the UK for the last 20 years that I've been a Christian, but do you know, I want it for us more. And the thing about this, whatever it is that's happening, is, you know, it's not massively about healings. It's not massively about preaching or random charismatic manifestations, you know, of the ilk we've all seen. It's not particularly about the prophetic. It's just about the weightiness of his presence. And the people are coming to drink. They are with the Lord for hours on end. They are singing and they are sitting under his word. And as they do, it seems that deep repentance is happening. They're turning from choosing their own way to choose God's way. And I find similar themes in today's passage, which I suppose shouldn't be surprising because God was very clear with me a few weeks ago that I was preaching Isaiah 55 and I was a bit like, great idea. Looked at it and went, hang on, what, really? Am I preaching Isaiah 55? And I just thought, oh, shut up, sit down, get on with it, girl. This is what I did. Now I look at the themes that have so moved me in the last two weeks and the themes in this passage and I think, oh, look, he knew what he was doing, didn't he, when he spoke to me? And it strikes me in this passage, in verse 1, that invitation that the Lord offers is all about repentance. That invitation to come is the presentation to God's people, to whom Isaiah was speaking, it's the presentation to God's people of a choice, and with that choice comes a promise. The choice is about repentance. It is about choosing no longer to go their own way, but instead to submit to God's ways. And as the passage goes on in verse 2, God starts to comment that, you know, quite frankly, he says to the people, quite frankly, your way of living has not produced much, has it? He says, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? and your labour for that which does not satisfy. He's like, come on, people, doing it your way is not working, is it? Why would you keep going if there's no bread? And it's even costing you money. It's even costing you effort, and it's producing absolutely nothing. This is a way, your way, he says to the people, your way is a way of not bread, not satisfaction, and not abundance. 
And then Isaiah, in bringing this prophecy, and by the way, let's just call him Isaiah, let's not get into all of that. If you want to, you can do that in Katia's classroom. I'm interested in something else today. Let's just call him Isaiah for the sake of it. Isaiah directly contrasts the people's way with God's way. God's way, he says, verses one to three, is utter abundance. It's water, it's wine, it's milk, it's rich food, it's all that you could possibly need or imagine or ask for. It is all that is good. And he goes on in verses four to five to say, you know, God's way brought abundance to King David. It brought him abundance of power and of authority. It brought covenant blessing for Israel and Judah. Later in the passage, verse 10, he goes on to say, God's abundance is so much that you can see it in the full glory of nature, the way that rain and snow come out of the sky and somehow produce life from barrenness. He says that is God's abundance. That is the way of God, that there is seed for the sower, bread for the eater in this glorious cycle of provision that goes on and on across generations. That is God's way. And then, just in case the people missed it, which you know is kind of hard to believe, really, when you think how clear it's been made, but just in case they missed it, in verses 8 and 9, it's spelled out. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. And then he underlines it. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours. And my thoughts than your thoughts. How God behaves in the text, his ways, and how God thinks, his blueprint, his design for reality, more literally his intentionality about how reality operates, These things, God's ways and God's thoughts are not how his listeners behave and think. Human ideas of right living, right behaviour are not always the same as his. Human ideas of what is truth, what is right thinking are not always the same as his. In fact, God's ways are so much higher than human ways I mean, even than the heavens are above the earth, if you can imagine that, so much higher that frankly, as human beings, the people simply cannot fathom what God is up to. It does not make sense. You know, the people are convinced right living looks like this. And right thinking, right understanding of the world and in the direction in which it's moving looks like that. And God's like, Mm-mm. my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And here's the thing, Isaiah says in that moment, the people have a choice. They can either choose their way, or they can choose the higher way. And if they choose the higher way, there's a promise attached. There's the promise that as they surrender to God, they will experience the abundance that has already been described as being attached to his way. If they choose the higher way, they will see wine and milk and bread and richness and everything that they could hope and dream of. 
Now hear me, and I know some of the thirdiers will appreciate this, I am not peddling prosperity theology. I am not saying that this means we get everything we want, when we want it, how we want it. I am also not offering an over-realized eschatology. Frankly, I have lived too many years for that one to be a possibility for me. But the text is very clear that abundance follows those who chase after God's ways and God's thoughts. And let's not make that less than true. And so the question comes, well, what is it that releases this abundance when we pursue God's ways and God's thoughts? The answer is in verse 11. We've just seen in verse 10 that it's rain and snow on a natural level that produce natural abundance. Now verse 11 says, in the same way, God's word will ultimately produce all abundance, natural and spiritual. My word, he says, that goes out from my mouth shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. That verse is amazing, isn't it? My word, he says, my word that comes from my mouth shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. His word, he says, will accomplish his ways. God's word will surely accomplish God's way and God's way we've already seen is a way of abundance. To borrow Graham's words from last week, and I did tell him he'd basically preach my sermon in the same way that he claims that Conrad preached his sermon. (laughs) But to borrow Graham's words from last week, God's word alone delivers when everything else fails to do so. God's word accomplishes God's ways. So we've got a choice with a promise. If you choose God's ways, God's thoughts, you will see his word accomplish his way of abundance in your life. Uh, Kind of an obvious choice, isn't it? Who is going to choose the other option? Except, of course, as Isaiah notes in verse 2, incredulous as he is about it, it is still possible. We are still free to spend our money on that which is not bread. Now, you can hear the subtext in Isaiah. He's like, seriously, people, why? It's not bread, not satisfaction, not abundance. You have to pay for it. You have to work for it. And you're getting nothing for it. Why would you do this? But God leaves us free, it would seem, to make that choice. And, of course, it's clear that the people to whom he's writing make this choice often. Let's be honest. So do we? Do we not? And why? Because repentance, and that's what this is, repentance is hard. If I'm going to say that God's ways, not mine, define holiness and right living, that's hard. 
If I'm going to say God's thoughts, not mine, are the blueprint to define what is true, what is reality, and what is not, frankly, that's hard. But it's non-negotiable if I want the promise, because the text is really clear that God's word accomplishes God's ways, not mine. My word, says the Lord, shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So abundant life comes from God's word, accomplishing God's thoughts and ways in my life, God's holiness, God's truth. But let's be honest, rather often I would prefer to establish my own standard of holiness. You know, the one that I have at least a half chance of meeting on some good days? Or I like to establish my standard of truth because, to be honest, my standard of truth is easier to believe than God's. And quite frankly, my perspective on truth is more palatable than his sometimes. And so I choose my way, not his. I choose the way of not bread instead of the way of abundance. It happens every time I see that God's word says one thing and I decide it somehow doesn't apply to me. So, for example, I read about not gossiping or not speaking evil of my brothers and sisters and yet repeatedly I open my mouth and say things I should not. And... I reason at that point that I'm only passing on what other people need to know so that they can make a right judgment, so they can be careful. There's a reason why I've not totally followed the requirement of the text. I reason myself above the word of God. My way over against God's way my standard of holiness over against God's standard of holiness. Or maybe we do it with the texts, for example, that relate to sexual intercourse being reserved for marriage. The texts about our bodies being a temple not to be joined in unholiness with another. And maybe we just decided they don't mean what they say. Or they're just cultural. That great sidestep. It's just cultural. That means I don't have to do anything about it. Thanks. Or another good one, that the actual words used in those texts don't mean what the church has always felt they meant. And so we choose our perspective on holiness and set it over against God's standards of holiness. And when we do that, what we do is to say, my way is higher than God's way. My standard of holiness is set over God's. We choose the way of not bread as well when we begin to question God's word, you know, is it really God's word? Actually a divine document, is it really? Or is it just a collection of human documents? 
you know, it's useful for understanding the history of the Jewish people. It's useful for understanding what they thought. It's helpful to know a little bit about the ancient Near Eastern culture. Great for comparing creation myths, but absolutely zero value in a technological age. You know, 21st century West, nah. Not really sure that's God's word. And so we consign it to history. We reason ourselves above the word of God. We stand in judgment over it. We choose our thoughts about truth over God's thoughts. And let's be honest, we do it on topics as diverse as gender, as hell. And when we do, we say my thoughts are higher than God's thoughts. My definition of truth and how I should understand the blueprint for reality, mm, that's better than God's. This is a prophetic message from Isaiah. Kind of not surprising, he's a prophet. It's what they do. <laughs> but I am going to suggest it's a prophetic message for us here at LST. For we who study or teach or work in this place, we are in more danger than most of reasoning ourselves above God's word instead of sitting under it in humility. We handle God's word in the classroom as a text. I have caught myself many times and commented in class about how I'm referring to this biblical text as a source, as if it is an object that I can hold out here and critically engage, as if I can pull it apart, analyze it, synthesize it, draw doctrines out of it, use it. I can look at the historical context, I can look at the grammatical context, I can get excited about the... Yeah, listen, all of that is well and good. I'm signed up to being an academic, all of that's well and good. It has a place, but here's the point. The question is, why are we doing this? Are we seeking to know for the sake of knowing, or are we seeking to know the word in order that we might better obey the word? Are we seeking to stand in judgment over this word or are we willing to sit humbly underneath it, allowing our lives to be shaped by it? Frankly, why are we here? So I do think this is a prophetic message. I think it should sting those of us who handle holy things so much that we may have become careless with them. We should be brought back to awe at the very power of this word of God that accomplishes God's ways. This is not just a text. It is not just an object. This is the power of God by which he accomplishes his ways and his thoughts. And do you know what? In Asbury, I think they're getting that. As they sit under the word. I mean, literally, people are getting up and reading their four or five verses of scripture that the Lord has put on their heart and there's not commenting on it. And then they sit down and the people are responding to the word of God as they sit under it. They are responding in repentance. And they are worshipping Jesus as a result in song and in testimony. And I just wonder, what would it be like if that happened here? What would it be like if we 
if we didn't stand over the word of God in judgment, but we sat humbly under it, what would it be like? So it is a prophetic message. Um, But there is a pastoral strand here too, and I've got to bring that. Because some of us are sitting here and we're honestly wrestling or struggling with God about portions of his word that we find hard to believe. And we want to submit to his thoughts and his truth, but submission is taking longer than we ever thought possible. Or we are struggling to align our lives, our ways, with his ways or standard of behaviour. Maybe it's taking months or years or even decades to undo our sin or our desire for sin. So if this is you, hear me now what I'm about to say. When our wrestles are honest and our hearts are seeking to obey him, God has grace for this. You may be living according to your ways and your thoughts, not his. But if your wrestles are honest and you are seeking to obey, he is at work in you to bring that change. When your wrestles are honest, God has grace for this, friends. God has grace but let our wrestles be honest. The passage calls us in verse three to listen and incline our ear, literally stretch your ear until you can hear him. Incline your ear, he says, and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. So God has grace, but let our wrestles be honest. Because if we're actively rejecting God's word, if our wrestles are no longer honest, if we've given up calling, seeking, listening to him, coming to him, it's different. Many of us know, don't we, what are the parts of God's word that we're actively rejecting? Maybe he's whispered it to you already. As you heard the reading of the text or during that wonderful worship time. Maybe he'll whisper to you now where it is that you're in active rebellion. Take a moment to listen. Where is it that you're reasoning yourself above the word of God rather than sitting under it? And so Isaiah exhorts the people and across the millennia, he exhorts us to, verse six, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near, verse seven, forsake your ways, your thoughts, return to the Lord. Why? Because as the text says, he will have compassion. He will abundantly pardon our pride 
our foolishness for trying to reason ourselves above his word as if our ways and our thoughts were higher than his. Isaiah ends by underlining the nature of the abundance that is on offer for those who choose the decision to follow his ways and his thoughts. We already heard in verses three to five how God wants to do for people in Isaiah's time what he did for David. God wants to covenant with those people again, a new generation, renewal of covenant with a new generation. And he will glorify them, he says, that the nations may come to them and therefore, of course, to him because of the glory that is upon them. And now in the last two verses of the passage, we hear again of this covenant abundance that God's word accomplishes for those who listen and obey him. Verse 12, God's word will bring his people into joy and peace. God's word will accomplish God's ways and God's thoughts in their lives. Nature itself even will cry out before the people of God in joy. The land that has been so damaged by the Genesis curse will now finally produce what is good. Cypress instead of thorn, the text says. Briar instead of myrtle. And verse 13, it... And it, by the way, is all of this abundance. It, the abundance of, on, that's on God's people, the abundance that's on the land. It, this abundance, shall make a name for the Lord. An everlasting sign, Isaiah says, that shall not be cut off. God's people and his abundance on our lives is to be an everlasting sign for his sake. That is your destiny. That is my destiny. His glory upon us for the leading of nations to him. That's your destiny. You are called and anointed to carry his glory. That others may come to know him through you. And that it would be for the sake of the making of his name. That, friends, is your destiny. That's why you're here at LST. That's your destiny. That's my destiny. And I just get to this point where I think, what if we believe this? What if we really believed we were made for glory and that the word of God could accomplish this? What would we do? Isaiah already tells us, verse 1, he says, come. Come to the waters. Come. Buy and eat. Even if you haven't got any money, you've got no resources, you've hit the end of yourself. You've got nothing to bring. Just come. Come to the waters. Come and drink, he says. Verses 2 and 3, listen diligently, incline your ear, come, hear. God, I think, is saying the same to us. Just come. He forgives abundantly. Doesn't matter if you're at the end of your rope, you've got no more resources, you have nothing left to give. 
come. The water's here and it's plentiful. So what do we do? I think, as this text says, we repent. We turn from our own ways and our own thoughts and we choose his ways and his thoughts. The text says it clearly, let us forsake our ways, let us forsake our thoughts, let us forsake our determination to set standards of holiness so we have a hope of meeting them, but instead accept God's standards of holiness that are higher than the heavens are above the earth. Let's stop framing truth and reality the way we want to. You know, the way that's easier to believe and easier to live with. And let's instead choose to submit to his thoughts, which are higher, higher than the heavens are above the earth, than ours. Let us repent and admit our need to sit under his word allowing our lives to be shaped by the text in order that God's word may accomplish God's way in our lives. May it be so. Thank you for listening to the London School of Theology podcast. To find out more about LSD and our courses, please visit our website.